0: I'm Mary Bliss McCrossan, and you're listening to Teaching Through Trauma, a podcast series by Teach for America Greater New Orleans, as a part of our 30 by 30 transformation storytelling series. This series explores the impact of TFA's network of core members, alumni, and partners on Louisiana's education system over the past 30 years. Episode 2, Exploring Solutions. In our first podcast, we explored the impact that major traumatic events have on students and educators, and how those memories can resurface years later when triggered by other traumas. Our speakers TFA alumni Dr. Christopher Mays and Brian DePlanche shared how the aftereffects of a catastrophe like Hurricane Katrina never really leave you. But with the time to process your experiences and the right support systems in place, you can heal and have a unique understanding of how to support others who are struggling with their own challenges. But what if you've never really experienced trauma and are tasked with the responsibility of teaching kids who have how do we create a system of support at the classroom and community levels for students and educators who've not only experienced the trauma of natural disasters, but also trauma that is caused by more specific circumstances like abuse or untreated mental health conditions? Or what about the daily traumas that so many students from historically oppressed communities experience that aren't as obvious to those of us who don't share those experiences? In this podcast We'll speak to three Teach for America alumni and staff members who build trauma-informed practices into their daily work with students and educators, and explore their thoughts on how to build solutions at every level to the impacts of trauma within our communities. Taylor Anderson is a 2016 Teach for America alumna who taught in Baton Rouge during the 2016 floods there, which affected her school community. She now works as a manager of teacher leadership development for TFA's South Louisiana region. Like many of TFA's teacher coaches, she has the unique perspective of being able to see what is happening in classrooms across different schools and districts because she coaches several core members. In summer of 2021, I asked her about her thoughts on how trauma impacts the students and schools that she works with.
1: The students that we serve experience trauma every single day in their neighborhoods, in their homes, in their schools. And I was having this conversation with somebody on our team about uh, the ACEs score where you can go in and you can like rate yourself out of 10, how many um, trauma points, quote unquote, you have based on the prompts that they give. And some of the questions are like, Did you grow up in a household? Did you experience your parents get a a divorce? Did you live in two separate homes? Did you get assaulted? Like those heavier things. And the thing that I always come back to is, but racism is not one of the points that you can earn on this score. And in my opinion, racism is worth far more than 10 points. And the impact that racism and white supremacy have on our students and their families blasts the ACEs score out of the water. And so sometimes our schools are creating more harm for students than than not. And so how can school districts and teachers and school leaders and, and other support staff reshape the school environment so that it is a protective factor and not something that is harmful. And that the school is a place where kids go to learn and feel safe in all of their identity markers. I know sometimes because we are in the South, there's a perception of like only a particular group of students are safe in our schools. And that can't be true. Like our trans students have to be safe, our gay, and lesbian students have to stay safe, and teachers too. And so like if the teachers are not safe, what's the point of even providing trauma-informed practices for our students? Like if, if the school is traumatizing for our teachers and our school leaders, what does that say about the environment that it creates for our kids?
0: Her questions amplified what keeps so many educators up at night. How do we ensure that schools are not only supporting traumatized kids, but also not perpetuating systemic trauma. Her point about what contributes to a child's ACEs score also made me wonder, at what point do we recognize that systemic oppression can be as traumatizing, or more so, than a single traumatic event? According to the CDC website, a child's ACEs score, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, is based on potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood before the age of 17. These experiences can include neglect, abuse, and violence. The higher a child's ACEs score is, the more likely they are to suffer from negative outcomes such as lower academic scores, higher rates of substance abuse, and dangerous health conditions. Experiencing many ACEs without an adequate support system can lead to toxic stress, which can cause permanent damage to the brain and body. About 61% of adults surveyed across 25 states reported that they had experienced at least one type of adverse childhood experience, and nearly one in six reported they had experienced four or more types of ACEs. The CDC states that up to 1.9 million cases of heart disease and 21 million cases of depression could have been potentially avoided by preventing ACEs and that the economic and social cost to families, communities, and society totals hundreds of billions of dollars each year. But while the CDC acknowledges that women and several racial and ethnic minority groups are at a greater risk for having experienced four or more types of ACEs, we are still developing our understanding of how race impacts adverse childhood experiences. Since Teach for America serves students who mostly identify as black, indigenous, and people of color, I wanted to understand how we were supporting teachers to address the racial trauma their students experienced and how it was impacting student learning. Our organization's mission is grounded in creating an excellent and equitable education system And I knew that culturally responsive pedagogy was an important part of helping our core members manifest that mission. It's an integral part of our teacher development programming and can help teachers not only have a better understanding of their students' cultural identities, but also empower safe and inclusive classrooms. So I called my colleague, Dana Cager, who is leading this work for our team. My name is
2: Dana Cager. I um, did the core in New Orleans in 2015. I currently work on staff as um, a manager of leadership and development, so coaching teachers. And my specialty is in classroom culture and culturally responsive pedagogy. When we talk about culturally responsive pedagogy, we are talking about um, a term that was coined by Gloria Ladson-Billings that has three pillars or components based on student learning, cultural competence, and critical consciousness. When we talk about student learning, we're talking about the intellectual growth and success uh, and moral development. When we talk about cultural competence, we're talking about skills that um, students use to affirm and appreciate their culture and also develop appreciation for others' culture. And when we talk about critical consciousness, We are talking about the ability to identify and analyze and be aware of real world problems that result from societal inequities. The way that it shows up in the classroom experience is if I am, um, one, I am aware of my students and who they are. Like the foundation is having a relationship with students and families. Also because I'm not from New Orleans, so I had to orient to New Orleans culture. Um, Although I share identities with my students, the Black experience isn't monolithic, so getting to know the community that I was serving was a priority of mine. And with culturally responsiveness, I, for example, I taught middle school ELA. So thinking about the content and the curriculum that I was putting in front of them, do they have examples of folks who look like them? Do they see themselves successful in content and curriculum? And there were lots of times where I had to do an audit of the curriculum that I was putting in front of them and kind of making adjustments in the moment because there is often a narrative in curriculum that the black experience is always a struggle and it's traumatic. And there are very few curriculums at the time when I started in education that showed black and brown folks being successful and um, achieving. So making sure that's just a small example of a way to make sure that um, the work that students are doing is responsive. In addition to just like, Why do I need to write this essay and be a critical thinker? And how does that apply to my life outside of these four walls Um, and how all of these things apply to my experience in the real world?
0: As a former teacher, that made a lot of sense to me. Of course, children are going to connect more to a curriculum if it speaks to their life experiences, especially if it empowers their identities. And in order for a teacher to make that happen, understanding those experiences and identities are key. It made me think of my earlier conversation with Brian Duplanche about how he was creating a safe space for kids in his classroom to process their trauma by using social-emotional learning lessons. I asked
2: Dana how she approached that part of the work. The hill that I will die on is partnerships and collaboration with parents and communities. There are so many people that are in education and leadership positions that are not from New Orleans, which is fine. If you prioritize the voices of community members and parents and students, um, in your planning and in your preparation, and in your, um, events, I, I, find it so important to use those stakeholders as true stakeholders, um, I value the most the relationships that I've built with parents and families Um, in all of my student relationships. I think it is the most important thing because, you know, because I have a relationship with you that my intentions are very pure and grounded in the best thing for your babies. We've built that trust so you know that they're safe with me. You know that I will advocate for them. You know that I will do everything in my power to ensure that they have ac- academic excellence um, at no matter what the cost. So if I'm hard on you because you're having a bad day, I get it, but this is like education is a priority and we're going to get there regardless of the trauma that you may have that you may be experiencing because when you come in my space because i have a responsive classroom it's a safe space and you feel safe to put those things down in order to focus on the task at hand and if i am if i'm a student and i'm in a classroom where i don't feel safe and i don't feel comfortable to be able to be vulnerable and take chances and make mistakes there's i can't learn There's a barrier between my ability to learn and internalize. No matter how engaging the lesson is, there's just a barrier if the space isn't for me, representative of me, and a safe space for me.
0: Dana made it clear that in order to truly understand and support your students, relationships matter. So what does that look like in practice? I asked Taylor how she supported her students after the flood in Baton Rouge during her first year of teaching, As one of the most catastrophic weather events in Louisiana's history, a storm dumped more than 20 inches of rain in East Baton Rouge over three days in August 2016, causing rivers and creeks to swell over their banks and flood a huge portion of the state. Approximately 75,000 structures were flooded, and over 11,000 people took refuge in state shelters, with thousands more having to evacuate their neighborhoods. During the peak of the flood, 265,000 students were out of school, thousands of teachers lost their homes, and 22 school buildings were badly damaged. Many of Taylor's students and their families were impacted by this traumatic event, and that trauma showed up in her classroom in a variety of ways. I wondered, did her school use culturally responsive pedagogy or social-emotional learning or trauma-informed practices after that event? Not quite. Here's what
1: she remembers. There were all kinds of behaviors and like what we would deem as like non-behaviors happening in the classroom. And obviously as teachers, we focus more on like the child walking across the desk (laughs) as opposed to the child that is just quiet in the corner. And whether our students were directly impacted or not, they were still feeling the effects from other kids while being in the classroom with each other. And me and my co-teacher were feeling the effects as well. And I will say with the support of our social worker, there were some things that were happening. And I think we all know that doing social work in schools is just hard. Even if you're like, if you're the social worker, or if you're the person who was like watching the social worker and, Every every child does not get seen by them. It's literally only the children who have extenuating circumstances or like diagnoses already made or things like that. So the short answer is not really. We did other things that were morale boosting. Or um, I went to my principal and said we need to have a fall festival because I was really trying to like take things from my elementary school experience and bring it in just to like bring some joy and so she's like cool cool but you're responsible for it. This is what happens when you suggest doing stuff and then they make you do it. So we did have a fall festival and then we did have a couple of other things for families to come out. And I think that was our social emotional learning. That was our trauma-informed practices where we really tried to build community and fellowship with our families and our kids. So families knew that we were there to support them. And the good thing was, because we went so hard with getting donations for them and like really checking in with them after the flood they already knew they could trust us and they already knew that they could come to us for support and help and resources so it was much easier to get their buy-in to come do these more extracurricular activities and to do more of these academic like homework nights and and things like that um but I think that's what we opted for. And in my opinion, that is kind of like a trauma-informed practice Practice that is not like necessarily named or acknowledged, um, but that's what I would say we we did for sure.
0: Although Taylor's school didn't follow a methodology for supporting their students and families through trauma, they knew instinctively that strengthening their relationships with their community was an important part of getting kids back to learning. Relationships build trust, Trust creates a safe space for students to express themselves and their needs. Trauma, by nature, leads to a profound loss of trust, so relationships are key in trauma-informed practices. While some schools aren't implementing specific practices to support students, other schools are using targeted training methods for their teachers and staff. I wondered what kind of trauma-informed training schools were using. So I asked Dana what she was seeing in schools across Greater New Orleans and what she had experienced.
2: Things that I see happening in schools. As soon as I heard this question, I thought of an experience that I had in a training um, with Safe Schools NOLA. And I was literally in the training crying because I was learning all of this great information about the trauma and the impact that it has on students. And I was like, "Why am I just now learning this in life?" And a lot of the work that they were doing was about trauma informed teaching, the impacts that it had on like life expectancies and I had one of the reasons why it was so emotional for me is because I had just lost my dad. And I, we were having a conversation about life, life expectancy and how different traumatic experiences kind of tick away at folks' life expectancies. And there are different markers that we can implement as educators to neutralize or positively impact um, the mental and emotional and physical health of students. And that work I found personally life-changing on the way that I looked at myself as a trauma-informed educator, just being aware of the different experience that students have, the different ways that the impacts can show up in the classroom, and different tools that I can use to change, I mean, I'm changing their experience in the classroom while dealing with their trauma at the same time. Um, That work was super impactful to me. I find that the conversations around trauma that schools are having in their professional development that's happening in the beginning of the year, I think is super important. And continuing that conversation throughout the year and constant reflection points on What are the ways that it's showing up in my classroom? What are some things that I can do to um, neutralize or positively impact students who have had traumatic experiences? But what if schools can't
0: afford that level of professional development? Public schools often lack the funds to pay for training and support for teachers or to hire additional support staff. How can teachers find solutions to challenging situations in the classroom caused by trauma? As a teacher, Taylor created her own solution to support her students through a traumatic time and shares that approach with the teachers that she coaches when there aren't enough resources to fully
1: support their students. You might not have a social worker, but many of our Title I schools don't have a social worker. They don't even begin to know where the money comes from to get one. Many of our schools probably have not even heard the word social-emotional learning or have no clue where to get a curriculum to do that, but... You have this student in your classroom every single day. What is something that you can do to make sure that you are providing a safe environment for your kids? So, if you have no clue what it is that you can do, great. Let's brainstorm. What are some things that are already going well in your classroom? What do you think are some things that you're already doing well? What are some things that you would like to do instead? What are some resources that your school offers? None? Cool. What are some resources that the community offers for you that are free? Because if you go to a school with a free resource, they are more likely to be like, yes, we can do it.
0: Being resourceful and committed to supporting your students is a must for any teacher, but we can't expect teachers to solve systemic inequities that cause their students' trauma by themselves. I asked Dana how she thinks we should approach the root of so much of our community's trauma that takes place outside of the classroom.
2: I think that it is important for us to kind of attack this problem of trauma and systematic oppression from multiple angles. I think that is the only way. The classroom is an important pillar, but health care, mental health services, physical and emotional health... All of of these things work together in order to improve the experiences of folks who have experienced trauma and to prevent further trauma from happening to disenfranchised communities and populations. There isn't a one solution by me being super responsive in the classroom that will change the trajectory if they still don't have access to healthy food or mental health services or health care
0: mental health, the elephant in the classroom. I knew that if I wanted to really understand what kind of comprehensive solutions we needed to make sure we were addressing the needs of all students impacted by trauma, that I'd need to talk to someone who worked directly with students with the highest needs. Enter 1999 Teach for America alumna, Liz Marcel Williams. Liz has been working in special education her entire career and is now the CEO for the Center for Resilience, which is the only therapeutic day treatment program in Louisiana. The center works with the Tulane University Medical School Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry to support children with behavioral health needs in Greater New Orleans. Using a trauma-informed programming model that combines equal parts academic programming, therapeutic and clinical services, and medical services, the goal of the center is for students to learn the skills they need to successfully transition back to the traditional school setting.
3: So Center for Resilience was started in response to a lack of what we call a continuum of behavioral health services in this city. Um, When we think about the needs of of children and adolescents who are having emotional health needs in a a perfect world, you'd see a whole range of supports. So things that you can provide typically in a school, having access to uh, a social worker or a counselor and a psychiatrist in the community. Um, For kids who need a higher level of support, there might be a specialized school that's trauma-informed and um, healing-centered with a lot of therapeutic supports. Um, Then you might see like a day program, which has a less of an academic focus um, and is is much more focused on the social-emotional wellness so kids can get to a place where they're doing more school-like work. Um, And then at the more restrictive end of the spectrum, you see um, group homes where maybe a child is also attending a therapeutic program or maybe they're going to a typical school. Um, And then you see psychiatric hospitalization and residential programs And in Louisiana, we are missing basically everything along that continuum except for at the polar extreme. So we have a lot of community-based providers, um, and we have psychiatric residential treatment facilities, although none in Orleans Parish, um, which is a gap in, in services here. But in any case, the Center for Resilience was created in response to schools articulating a need for additional and much more clinical and medical supports for a small number of kids whose emotional needs really exceeded what we'd expect a school to be able to provide.
0: Liz has had her own experiences with trauma and loss that brought her to this work. She experienced divorce and strain with her parents as a young child. Then her childhood best friend died of a brain tumor in third grade. And soon after that, she lost a father figure in her life and then a grandparent, many of the same criteria that is measured in the ACEs assessment. However, she had a support system in place to help her which many children don't always have. She thinks these experiences early in her life helped her develop a real empathy towards others who've experienced loss or other kinds of trauma that manifest in what is ultimately hurt, confusion, and pain.
3: I think one of the things that's important to point out is, you know, there is there is the event that can be traumatic and the trauma is really what happens following that triggering or traumatic event. You know, so I gave you a little bit about my background and you know, losing my closest friend to a terminal illness as a small child is obviously a traumatic event, but then I had relationships and systems of support to help me go through that. So the impact of that event on me um, was mitigated by those healthy relationships and supports and interventions. I think what we see for a lot of kids in New Orleans is that number one, there are multiple events that are traumatic and number two, the relationships and the systems of support are not always put in place. So that child has not had um, the opportunities to process healthily um, the grief or the loss that they've experienced. So, um, so I think that's one thing to point out. But but what we see typically, by and large, the vast majority of the kids who've come to us um, have had numerous traumatic events, um, and that includes exposure or being a victim of Um, community or domestic violence. Um, We have a lot of kids who have lost a primary caregiver either to death, um, whether it's illness related or related to violence or long-term incarceration. Um, and are really processing those losses. Um, We have children who have had, you know, certainly emotional neglect. A lot of our kids are very stressed and they're coming from families that are very stressed and struggle to provide care um, despite, you know, best intentions uh, because of a whole lot of different factors. Um, We have kids who are acutely aware of and grappling with racial traumas. Um, You know, we live in a city with a very strong legacy of, segregation um, and, and generational poverty that falls along very racialized lines here. And our kids are very aware of that. And certainly current events over the last year and a half have very much impacted them. Um, so we think about that as a trauma and a stressor as well. Um, so those are some of the, the things that I think are, are most significant.
0: Liz also sees the connection between systemic inequities and racialized trauma. Justice Dana and Taylor do. For example, black communities across the country report higher levels of stress and trauma for months after an incident of police killing an unarmed black person in their state. Considering the multiple high profile shootings of unarmed black people that have occurred since 2020, black Americans were in an almost constant state of trauma for well over a year. Racialized trauma has also impacted families on an economic level. A recent study on the effects of the pandemic on families found that 60% of Black, Latinx and single-parent households are experiencing financial hardships. Here in New Orleans, that impact could potentially be even higher when factoring in that many of our families of color work in the hospitality industry, which was devastated during the first year of the pandemic and is still struggling to recover. Many of the families that the team at the Center for Resilience worked with have been impacted by the same inequities and have struggled with how to navigate the demands of the pandemic and still support their children
3: our families are stressed um, we've we've had several families who call really feeling like they are in crisis um, you know I, I think what we've seen for everybody <laughs> all of us myself included we joke about what last spring looked like where every night I would get a whiteboard out and my partner and I would go through what the next day looked like because we had a toddler at home and we had to figure out what how we provided care. So, you know, we've seen that across the country with families navigating that. But imagine a kid who is very prone to emotional outbursts, whether they're verbal, whether they're physical, and the kid is actually causing damage to the home. Um, so we've seen a lot of conflict um, between um, kids and caregivers, uh, occasionally resulting in hospitalizations. Um, we've had a, a higher rate of kids getting involved in risky behavior in the communities, um, and families really being concerned, um, whether it's criminal activity or unfortunately in several instances where we've seen predatory sexual behavior directed towards our kids, um, and trying to help families manage that stress, um, and, and also provide support to a child. Um, so families have, absolutely been stressed. And then, of course, as I mentioned seeing some of the other things that we know to be true for the the population we work with in terms of unemployment and housing insecurity. We've had several families who've moved from location to location and are dealing with that on top of everything else.
0: How do they approach finding solutions to the challenges facing their students with this in mind? Turns out, just as in Dana and Taylor's work, it's centered on relationship building.
3: We have a very intentional relationships-based approach. Um, We often say that the single most effective intervention that we provide is our environment, where you have a group of highly trained folks who are really aligned on what it is to provide a healthy setting, a loving setting that provides unconditional positive regard for kids, um, that is non-punitive, That is not behaviorist, right? But what we found this year was when we looked at and tracked our kids' engagement in um, various virtual sessions, their highest level of engagement were in um, relationship building activities. So we would do therapeutic enrichment activities virtually. That's where we had the highest rates of attendance. So we've actually revamped our middle school program very significantly to include a lot more therapeutic um, minutes throughout the day. They're going to be outside multiple times a day. Um, they're building in a whole lot of choice elements so that kids are actually choosing their activities um, at different points throughout the day.
0: Liz found that her students were giving staff feedback on what they needed in their relationship-building activities, which helped her and her staff understand where they were in regards to their healing and learning needs. But most school staff don't have the same training in supporting kids with distinct mental health issues that the staff at the Center for Resilience has. With that in mind... I asked Liz what she thought schools should be focusing on in preparation for the 2021 school year.
3: I think schools know to expect that kids are going to be coming back to school with a whole lot of additional um, emotional needs and are trying to be thoughtful about how to address those while also knowing that they are still being held accountable um, to demonstrate academic gains and that they're really stressed about learning loss and how they're gonna maintain um, school performance scores and things like that. So there is a lot that that schools are navigating. And, and it's a tough time to be doing that, right? Because we're all feeling um, financial constraints and, um, and staffing constraints and those kinds of things. So with that caveat, I would say, we're at it, there's a real tension right now as schools are planning for the return for kids, um, and I think while there's an acknowledgement of social emotional needs, most of the plans that I'm seeing are really emphasizing how do we make up for that learning loss, and I'm worried about that um, because I do think what needs to be in place as kids return to school, you know, in um, at school like full populations they need a lot of opportunities for relationship building and connection um, and to feel that sense of safety uh, before we really hit them over the head with all of the content that is also a really necessary part of of their school experience. Um, But one of the things that we've talked about when we've thought about how do you translate trauma-informed practices into a school setting is, you know, how can you build in opportunities for morning circles and afternoon circles where you're checking in on how kids are doing and there's brief opportunities to make connections and, and talk about non-school things. Um, how do you make sure that kids get outside every day and that adults are actively engaged with kids while they're outside and with our youngest ones that, that really there's opportunities to play um, and for adults and kids to play together. That's actually a really significant element of our programming on the elementary floor and it's how we think kids have connected so quickly to the adults in the building and to one another.
0: But what about staff? Students aren't the only people in a school building who are experiencing trauma right now. Nearly half of public school teachers who quit their jobs after February 2020 did so because of pandemic-related stress, longer hours, health concerns, and a lack of child care for their own kids. Black teachers also reported what's being called racial battle fatigue and having been tasked with helping their students understand and process the impacts of racialized violence— Without having a space to process it themselves, I asked Liz what she and her team were doing to support their staff to process their own experiences.
3: We started surveying our staff every quarter, um, and you know when we first did the survey, we didn't know that it would become a regular thing. Um, and we're actually going to continue it next year. But it was an opportunity for folks to give anonymous feedback on you know, do you feel safe? Are we following COVID protocols? Do you feel connected to the organization? Um, do you have stresses that you need to share with someone et cetera? and one of the outcomes of the first survey that we did was we got an employee assistance program for staff to access that we've been talking up a lot about free mental health care but also legal advice and child care connections and all those kinds of things um and so you know what are the other things that schools can put in place to acknowledge the importance of staff wellness while still making sure that the work of the school continues and that is I don't envy school leaders, the the jobs that they have ever, but right now it feels particularly challenging to try and balance those things. But um, I think staffing up for mental health and building in those opportunities throughout the day for relationship building, um, for play, for physical activity um, and for processing are all really important and will ultimately accelerate learning.
0: Clearly the impacts of mental health needs and services are far reaching and there are plenty of gaps in the system. I asked Liz what she thought we needed in order to work towards a system that could fully support the mental health needs of the GNO community.
3: The long and the short of it is we need to define and then build out a continuum of care and fund it so it can exist in in the long term. Um, And before Louisiana made a shift to privatized care, there were a lot more supports and options along that continuum. And I think parallel to that work we do need to think about the indicators of health and wellness and um, opportunities for for prevention. Um, And those are significant and really long-term investments that don't bear immediate fruit, so they're not sexy if you're a politician. Um, But that's where we see real change, right? So I think about this from starting with really quality parenting centers. I think about it with access to universal childcare, so that families are less stressed and kids are are accessing supportive learning environments and developmental environments. I think the other piece as we think about this continuum is how do you access all of these services? And Orleans lacks a, a single point of entry or like your one stop shop where a kid can, and a family, number one, knows to go to, do, because that's something that schools and families are always navigating. Well, who do I go to for help? Who's my resource? I go to this single place. I get an assessment and evaluation. I get a referral. I'm assigned to um, a social worker who's going to ensure that I'm able to access that care and follow up on that care. Um, And that might match a child to a setting like ours. It might just match them to a community-based provider. Um, But I think that if we could gather kind of the the city around that single point of entry and and a clear definition of the the continuum of behavioral health care that needs to exist, we can assess, evaluate, match a child to services. And so certainly there's implications there in terms of the funding aspect, right? You know, going back to the Department of Health, thinking about Medicaid funding, um, thinking about block grants that might be available that are coming down um, so that we have the funding to match the service need.
0: So, what does this all mean? We've heard from Taylor Anderson, who relied on her instincts and past experience to provide her students with support through trauma and who encourages her teachers to find solutions wherever they can. Dana Cager has trained extensively in culturally responsive pedagogy and trauma informed practices. And Liz Marcel Williams, who has worked with students with learning differences for decades and now leads an extremely specialized program that serves the highest need students in our community. All three have used their unique experiences in their lives and in the classroom to inform their leadership journeys and how they support students and teachers. These experiences may have been different, but one commonality is their unwavering belief in the power of building relationships with students, families, and communities. Is that enough to solve the challenges that are caused by the impacts of trauma? Probably not, but it's a start. While nobody has discovered the perfect set of solutions, it's clear that the Greater New Orleans community, like so many others, is struggling to meet the needs of those most impacted by trauma. It will require leadership at all levels, from teachers and school leaders, to neighbors and friends, to city and state leaders, to make trauma support a priority for Louisianans who are suffering. The work that Teach for America staff and alumni are committed to is happening alongside the leadership of community organizations and leaders who are all trying to find the best solutions. You can find a list of resources, consultants, and organizations on our landing page at tfageno30.com. In the meantime, listen to the people in your life and acknowledge your trauma and theirs as a very real experience that we are all having collectively. Create spaces for healing and for understanding, and then advocate for more trauma support services in your communities, schools, and state. I'm Mary Bliss McCrossan, and you've been listening to episode two of Teaching Through Trauma, part of the 30 by 30 transformation series celebrating 30 years of impact for Teach for America Greater New Orleans. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our sponsors at Entergy, who've been our partners in education for over 20 years and whose support made this series possible.